everyone, and welcome to the Adventures of Mr. Chris. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world and ask why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the Book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that people are worried about the end of the world. This is the first of a two-part extra series focusing on disease and pandemics. In this first special episode, we turn to the bubonic plague of the 14th century, better known as the Black Death, a pandemic that devastated Europe and remains the single most deadly disease in human history, accounting for a staggering number of deaths estimated as high as 200 million. We'll look at the science and history behind the bubonic plague and explore how this disease traveled from fleas and rats to humans. We'll also look at how medieval society responded, from religious communities like the flagellants to Italian medical experts who developed the now-famous plague masks and gave us the term quarantine. So stay tuned for part one of this deep dive into pandemic history, and be sure to check out part two, which will be looking at the 1918 influenza pandemic. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my end-of-the-world class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So with no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. So the bubonic plague, or as we now come to often refer to it as the Black Death, swept through Europe somewhere beginning around 1346 and then lasting until 1353, kind of the height of the major outbreak. And we know that this was really the second major plague that had swept through Europe with, uh, although it was the most deadly of the three plagues that sort of scholars look at, the earlier one that we know a good deal about as well is the plague of Justinian, which was from 542 to 546 CE. Now, the Black Death took um, primarily three forms, either bubonic, pneumonic, or septicemic plague, but by far scholars believe that bubonic appears to have been um, the most common or prevalent form of the plague that struck Europe and other areas. Now, we know that this was an infectious disease that caused the worst global pandemic in history, as I said, and although there's still a lot of scholarly debate about this point, um, the general consensus is it originated somewhere in either Central or Eastern Asia, and then spread by the extensive trade routes that were already in place at that time, first into the Mediterranean, and then from there out into Europe and parts of North Africa and the Middle East. We know, um, thanks to research in the late 1800s, that the source of the plague is the Yersinia pestis bacteria, which is spread from fleas to infected black rats, and then from those fleas and infected rats to human host. And this is what we call zoonotic spread, where you have the transmission from animal to humans. Now, as I mentioned, there's sort of three um, types of plague, the bubonic, pneumonic, and the septicemic plague. So the most common form of the bubonic plague is what we associate with the Black Death. And as I said, this is transmitted by fleas to humans. And basically what happened is you you had these very painful swollen buboes, which is where we get the term bubonic plague from, that emerged after the lymphatic system was affected, anywhere from about one day to seven days for this initial infection to take place. And then these buboes would swell into these large hardened masses, anywhere from the size of an egg to an apple to an orange. And these would be in along your lymph nodes, so along your throat, armpits, thighs, and groins, and had about an 80% mortality rate, which is one of the reasons that 
the deaths were so significant in this period. Now, pneumonic plague is a secondary kind of plague that was not as common, but was still part of this larger story, the Black Death. Now, what's important about pneumonic plague is that unlike the other forms, it can be spread by human-to-human -human contact, basically through um, spit or blood or any kind of fluid from the body. And basically what happens here is that the bacteria actually gets into the lungs and your lungs get infected, leading to a respiratory disease. Fever, headaches, chest pain, and then frothy, bloody spit as the sort of the conditions are um, worsening. And in most cases, it's considered fatal, and often someone who would contract pneumonic plague would die within 72 hours. And then finally, septicemic plague. This was the least common form, but in many ways is the most deadly. And this is basically where you have the Yersinia pestis bacteria directly infecting the blood rather than the lymphatic system or um, the respiratory system. And essentially what happens is the bacteria begins to poison your blood and then your major organs start to shut down, your blood vessels hemorrhage, and you get blood starting to pool under your skin. And this is where you get the telltale uh, sort of black appendages that are slowly rotting. Um, and this is not why we call it the Black Plague, although some people um, erroneously associate those two together. And these uh, would very rapidly lead to high fever and delirium with near 100% mortality and uh, usually death within about 48 hours. Now you can see here on this map um, one version of how historians believe that the Yersinia pestis um, bacteria spread through rats and following trade routes beginning somewhere in Eastern Europe near Hebe or Henan. Now, some scholars argue that it actually started more closer to Central Asia, somewhere perhaps between Samarkand and Kashgar there on the map, um, in that kind of Asiatic steppe region. There's still a lot of debate about um, where the plague reservoir or kind of the origin may have been versus where the first outbreaks began. But as you can clearly see there, the green lines being both Silk Road and other um, existing both overland and sea trade routes, and then the sort of pinkish purple line where um, the plague was spreading and the different time periods where it was moving through. And you'll remember from the readings, Kaffa on the Black Sea, and then down into Constantinople, that 1346-1347 period was really when uh, most scholars pinpoint the emergence of bubonic plague into Europe and then spreading through the trade routes there across the Mediterranean. Similarly here, you can see um, over on the far right where Ostrakhan is on the west coast of the Caspian Sea. In green, that's sort of our initial outbreak area when we're thinking about the impacts on Europe and the Mediterranean. And then as you can see, the years going down from 1346 to 1353 in the different colors, um, where in the directions the outbreaks are moving. So importantly, traveling by sea to many coastal towns, and then from those coastal towns, moving both north and east in some cases, or north and west, or in other cases, south, such as with um, some of the infections in Spain and France. So just kind of give you a, a general overview of where some of these plague movements were taking place. And as our scholars noted there, you can see up where Novgorod is in the northeast edge of the map, that kind of dashed line would have been the boundary of the Golden Horde. So this is the kind of the end of the Mongolian Khanate and their ruling period. And that kind of created a barrier um, where the plague essentially circled around and did a huge loop and came back to that area towards the very end. 
Now we think about sort of the movement or the zoonotic transfer process of bubonic plague. Essentially what happens is you have this plague reservoir that would exist out in the natural world somewhere where um, fleas and rats and the bacteria are all interacting. Either you have the bacteria being ingested by the flea or you have a flea biting a rat who's infected leading to that kind of combination of the bacteria and the flea together. And that's where we get what's known as the infective flea. So a flea who's now carrying the bacteria. Those fleas congregate with more rats and you get essentially a large colony infection, which then leads to high mortality and the die off of those rats. Once those large number of rats die, then the hosts for the bacteria that are inside, the fleas are suddenly gone. Fleas are trying to feed, but they need a new host. And so basically anything near them that's moving, that's warm-blooded, giving off CO2, they'll try to jump onto. And that's where, particularly when we start to move into human contact, where the fleas will then jump from the rats to the humans. And that's sort of the zoonotic uh, moment where you get the transfer from the rats to the humans. And then once the individual human is infected, they start developing uh, assuming that it's bubonic plague, these buboes, as you can see pictured there in the armpits and the neck. And then from there, then you get community spread amongst individuals. And then depending on what form the plague is taking, it could be pneumonic, in which case then you're also kind of having person-to-person -person contact. Uh, but in the other cases, you would have then those individual people, along with rats and fleas, then transferring that to other parts um, of the country or other parts of Europe more broadly. So you can see here an image from 14th century depicting citizens in a town of Tournai in Belgium burying the dead, um, the carrying of these caskets and digging up holes to put people in. And although this is a little bit later from the 16th century, this is sort of a Flemish painting depicting some of the later waves of outbreaks that continue to sort of resurge through Europe for the next couple hundred years. And you can see clearly there um, just the significance of how many people are either dead or dying, and the impacts of death itself. Some of the iconic imagery as well of the skeletons with the caskets, death riding on the horses, the carts full of um, skulls being dragged around. And then Again, in some of the imagery, you can see, for example, in the painting, The Plague of Ashto by Nicholas Poulsen, 1632, or 1630, sorry. Um, this is an interesting painting. Our, one of our authors talks about this because you're starting to get some semblance amongst um, some of the public, at least, that rats may have somehow been involved in the spread of these plagues. And so I've highlighted a few of the rats that were included in this painting. So this was depicting an outbreak in Italy that took place um, between 1629 and 1631. And also you can see here another um, telltale example of these early understandings of plague, uh, particularly the idea that the plague was caused by miasma or this kind of bad air that was welling up from the ground. And so you see people there kind of covering their mouths and their noses to try to keep from uh, avoiding breathing in that air. Now, earlier scholarship thought that maybe 20 to 30 percent of Europe died from the plague, so maybe a third. But more recent scholarship since the 1960s and 70s, um, and particularly work in the last 10 or 15 years, suggests that, that number um, is only about half as much. So we're looking at more like 40 to 60 percent of the population of Europe having died during this 
um, large period of plague spreading around. And when we take the deaths in Europe, which anywhere estimates range anywhere from 30 to 100 million, and add that to the global population, um, scholars suggest that it could be anywhere from 75 on the low end to 200 million on the high end of people that died during this period. And just to give you a sense, um, this at this time in the mid 1300s, scholars estimate that the global population was about 500 million people. So you can imagine that if 100 or 200 million people died, you're talking about a significant decline in global populations, particularly in Europe where the plague was the strongest. Now, there's a lot of debate about this and a lot of research still going on, but scholars believe that there may have also been a second form of disease that was circulating in sort of tandem with the bubonic plague, perhaps kind of hemorrhagic fever, something like Ebola, or possibly even a form of anthrax. There's a lot of debates about um, how we'd be able to tell what something else was going on. Um, but there's a suggestion by a number of scholars that we may have been looking at sort of two interlinked diseases, which helped account for both the high levels of mortality and areas where the disease seemed to move where um, we would think it wouldn't if it was just uh, bacterial tied to rats and fleas. So interestingly, if we were sort of living in this period in the 14th century, we wouldn't have called this the Black Death. We would have called it perhaps the Great Dying or the Great Pestilence or the Plague. It was only later that this name of the Black Death came into popular usage. And we know that although there were some places in Europe that were spared, particularly some of the colder mountain areas in the Scandinavian countries, um, other places such as Florence and Italy lost more than 60% of their population, and many rural areas which were hit the hardest um, were almost entirely depopulated, in some cases for a generation or longer. So this is a, one of many popular depictions of the Dance of Death, or what's sometimes referred to as the Dance Macabre. And these kind of images, and you'll see them in many sometimes with people holding hands with skeletons interspersed. This one happens to just have the skeletons depicted. Um, really spoke to how common death from plague had become in this period of medieval Europe. But it also depicts this idea that um, some of our scholars talked about that because of the speed of some of these, particularly if it was a septicemic or perhaps pneumonic, that you could literally feel fine in the morning um, and be literally dancing or figuratively uh, be dancing. And by the end of that day, you could be dead. Just how fast um, or on the verge of dying in terms of the speed and power of the diseases. And for those of you that are fans of Monty Python, you'll know that this is kind of an iconic image of these mass deaths and particularly the image of the carts being carried through medieval village. Made famous in Holy Grail.
not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Here. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. I think I'll go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look. There's no something you can do. I feel happy. I feel happy. Ah, oh, thanks very much. Touch all. See you on Thursday. Right. right. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. So, as uh, you saw there towards the end, the comment, uh, you know, Robinson's lost nine today, so I won't be back around until Thursday. Speaks to a reality that you know entire families were being wiped out um, in the matter of a few days. Now, because we know that the plague was spread by rats and infected fleas, it often the pattern, sort of the movement of the plague, tended to follow a seasonal pattern, being worse in the warmer months and then dropping off in the colder winter months. Now, there are some exceptions to this, but kind of as a broad general rule, that generally held. Bubonic and septicemic plague, as I mentioned, uh, rarely spread between people, but the pneumonic plague was easily spread, and this particularly was the case in more congested urban areas. And the outbreaks, the outbreaks also spread faster and had a much higher mortality rate in rural areas compared to urban centers, um, not only because of the closer proximity of individual people in the villages, but also because of the um, people, rats, and even possibly other animals that the fleas might have lived on. So it's important to remember sort of at this period of time in the middle of the 1300s in Europe, about 90% of the population was rural. And so this is where the majority of deaths were occurring. And it's also why mortality estimates cover um, such a large range between 75 and 200 million, because we just don't have great records in a lot of these rural areas, even though we know that they were severely impacted. So our authors talked about a number of different sort of vectors of transmission or areas and sources where plague spread through, one of these being monasteries, not only because they were important social centers for villages and communities, but they were also often the place associated with trade and often food supplies, granaries and um, church lands and more broadly. Another were the traveling merchants who were an important source of the transmissions um, and many think one of the primary vectors, particularly when we think about um, the role of merchant um, marine ships and traders bringing um, disease into Europe from the Mediterranean. Another uh, source of these transmission of the vector were the religious pilgrims who were traveling around spreading plague from one town to another. And we see this, a good example of this in groups like the flagellant movements that were traveling around Europe, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the lecture. And then you also had individual people that were fleeing infected cities and then bringing the infections with them as they moved from one town to another. So as Benedict Dow and other scholars have noted, um, this, the rapid spread of the Black Death throughout Europe was greatly enhanced by all of these emerging trade networks, and in particular, the role of maritime trade and transport, which I said earlier, really allowed the plague to move very rapidly and to often enter a country on multiple fronts. Now, importantly, at the same time, we had this kind of population boom that had been happening for the better part of 300 years at this point, starting about 100 or 1000 CE. 
And this was fueled partly by changing agricultural practices, uh, but also these sort of growing and emerging um, new sort of class of merchants that really hadn't existed before and were starting to um, shake up and lead to growing urban centers and urban economies. And so as more people were leaving agricultural lifestyles and moving into these crowded urban areas, poor sanitation and cramped living conditions, this is obviously a perfect breeding ground for rats and bacteria. And remember, this is also prior to, we still don't have a germ theory of transmission at this point in time. So doctors really had a limited understanding of how bacteria operated. Um, in fact, no real knowledge of bacteria, how it functioned, how it was transmitted, or the kind of impacts it had on people. However, that didn't stop doctors from doing their best. So one of our iconic figures from this period is the plague doctor or Dr. Beaky of Rome, as Paul first um, humorously noted in this engraving from 1721. So during this outbreak, doctors, like they do at any period of time, are doing their best to respond with the resources they have. And the equivalent of a medieval PPE were these um, leather masked, leather draped bird beak outfits with the iconic black hat and the caduceus or the winged uh, medicals insignia on the staff. And although they look quite funny, they actually served um, a very specific purpose, which is these long leather beaks allowed the doctors to stuff them with various herbs and flowers that were very strong smelling because the idea at this point, remember, was that um, miasma or this kind of bad air was seeping up from the ground and making people sick. And so if you could avoid breathing in that bad air, then you could stay healthy. And so by breathing through this sort of uh, early aromatic filter, the hope was that doctors would be less prone to being exposed in combination with essentially the full um, protective gear from the head to the toes. These doctors were often operating at what are known as lazarettos, which are essentially early medical quarantine facilities that were often located either on the outskirts of town or in certain cases even on islands um, directly across from some of the capital cities or the major port areas. So you can see here an example from a little bit later. This is a 16th century plague mask from the German Museum of Medical History in Ingolstadt. And we know from some of these remaining examples that essentially these leather um, hoods had cut out eyes often with glass inserts so that they could still see but their eyes would be protected and these sort of beak-like protuberances um, that as I mentioned before would have some kind of holes for breathing and then would be stuffed full um, often of roses, carnations, mint, um, various spices, camphor, and in some cases even sponges that had been soaked in vinegar. So basically any kind of a strong smelling um, substance that could help filter out that miasma. So to stop the spread of these plague cities in Italy, which were some of the first places where we start to see containment efforts taking place, um, began to put a halt on entry into um, port cities, especially those um, coming on by boats and forcing people to wait for originally 30 days before entering the cities and then later 40 days. And it's because of these practices in places like Venice that we have the term quarantine today, coming from the Italian um, quaranta giorni, meaning 40 days. 
And so this was essentially the duration that travelers would have to stay either in the lazarettos or in other places before being considered healthy and giving the sans courtier or these kind of um, health passes to be able to then enter into the city. And you can see uh, one of the famous lazarettos, uh, Manola Island on Malta there, this kind of star-shaped, um, almost like a fortress on this island. So that would have been where they would have quarantined individuals um, prior to giving them access to the city. So it's just a, a brief video looking at a, a few of the key dynamics from this period um, that we're talking about this week. Plague is notorious for causing mass sickness and devastation. But as much tragedy as the disease has caused, it also helped drive crucial scientific and social progress. Plague is an infectious disease caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. It mainly affects rodents and spreads by way of insects. Because of these insect carriers, plague has been passed on to humans with devastating consequences. Three major plague pandemics have occurred in human history. And while they occurred centuries apart, they shared similar traits that paved the way for the spread of disease. One cause of plague pandemics was the rise of international trade. Trade routes connected once isolated communities and created large economic networks. But by facilitating the movement of goods between communities, trade routes also facilitated the movement of germs. International trade was an impetus for the first plague pandemic on record, the Plague of Justinian. In the sixth century, Outbreaks began in Egypt and, thanks to land and sea trade routes, they spread throughout the Byzantine Empire. Named after the emperor at the time, the Plague of Justinian is estimated to have wiped out about half of Europe's population. Growing economies also made way for urbanization and a rising urban population. This resulted in crowded neighborhoods and the accumulation of waste, which created unsanitary living conditions. Cities and their residents essentially became incubators for germs and diseases. This was particularly evident in the second and most infamous plague pandemic. In the 14th century, Europe was experiencing an economic and population boom, especially in cities. Proper waste management did not exist at the time, making cities vulnerable to disease. After trade routes brought plague from Asia, where it killed millions in China and the Middle East, the disease wiped out about a third of Europe's population, earning itself the moniker, the Black Death. What also aided in the transmission of the disease was the lack of medical knowledge. For most of human history, the cause of illnesses, germs, was unknown, making sicknesses like the plague a mystery. This lack of knowledge drove the spread of disease as recently as the 19th century. Outbreaks in Northwest India eventually reached major port cities in China. In just over a century, plague was exported throughout the globe and caused outbreaks in every continent except Antarctica making it the most widespread pandemic in history. This plague pandemic, however, was the last. In 1894, scientists discovered the bacteria behind the plague outbreaks. 
Their discovery helped further developments in microbiology, medicine, urban planning, and sanitation methods, which led to the treatment and prevention of the disease. Economic expansion, urbanization, and a lack of medical knowledge contributed to the disastrous spread of plague. In turn, however, the disease helped catapult crucial advancements in science and public health, very well making plague pandemics a thing of the past. So as our author notes, the extent of the contagious power of the Black Death had been almost mystifying. The central explanation lies within characteristic features of medieval society in a dynamic phase of modernization, heralding the transformation from a medieval to an early modern European society. So this really speaks to the period just before the one we've been looking at the last uh, month or two with Charles Taylor and his work in the book A Secular Age, which our authors Joester and Wilkinson have been discussing at length. So we're really looking at this moment where we're starting to see the shift from a pre-modern world where we have this idea of the poorest self embedded in an enchanted world to the rise of the modern self, this buffered, disenchanted and disconnected individual. So we're really looking at this before the pre-modern to modern shift. This is kind of what's leading us into kind of the precursor, you could say, to this pre-modern shift. And so the play also importantly weakened as um, our lecture talked about in the teaching company video, looking at sort of the state of European society on the cusp of the Black Death and the importance of the sort of three estates and how it had shaped social relations with nobles and clergy and peasants and how that was beginning to change. And importantly, the way that the Black Death really kickstarted that transformation in a new way, um, which in many scholars' opinions really helped to bring about the end of feudalism um, several hundred years earlier than it might have otherwise happened. So when we think about plague and religion and the way that these ideas intersect, obviously um, it's easy to see why people may have felt that the world was coming to an end in the face of this kind of onslaught of plague. Now, as Benedict and other scholars have noted, and as we discussed briefly, the state of medical knowledge in medieval Europe um, at this time was still not nearly as advanced as it would be in later centuries. And so there was a lot of guessing as to what was really going on when the plague struck. And because of that, very often religious explanations were resorted to to explain what would otherwise be natural bacterial phenomenon. So as our author notes, in this early phase of modernization, Europe was also on the way to the golden age of bacteria, when there was a great increase in epidemic diseases caused by increases in population density and trade and transport. While knowledge of the nature of epidemics and therefore the ability to organize countermeasures to them was still minimal. And most people believed plague and mass illness to be a punishment from God for their sins. So they responded with religious penitence, penitential acts aimed at tempering the Lord's wrath, or alternately with passivity and fatalism, or perhaps even in some cases celebration, as our lecturers talked about. So it was a sin to try to avoid God's will. Now, in one of the other articles we read um, for this week, an excerpt from um, Epidemics and Society, From the Black Death to the Present by Frank Snowden, he kind of gives us a broader historical look at plagues and pandemics and epidemics 
with a real focus on kind of the science and the changing scientific knowledge and techniques in these historical events. And he also notes that the spread of plague in Europe was an important, uh, decisive really, in helping to advance medical technologies and medical knowledge that gave us the ability eventually to fully understand what was going on with these plagues. So as he mentions here in his excerpt from what we read, attention to the effect of a disease on the individual human body is not a matter of ghoulish curiosity. Epidemic diseases are not simply transposable causes of suffering and death. On the contrary, the history of each high-impact infectious disease is distinct. Indeed, a feature of bubonic plague was that its symptoms seem almost purposefully designed to maximize terror. They were excruciating, visible, dehumanizing, and overwhelming. And as Snowden argues, even though there had been a long line of Greek medical scholars going back to Hippocrates and Galen in the 5th century BCE, who had essentially developed and argued for a purely naturalistic understanding of disease and illness, um, despite the advances made by these and other scholars, there always remained a kind of a sense that disease and illness may also possibly be supernatural in origin. And that idea sort of went in parallel with these naturalistic medical views and really resurged during the height of the Black Death in Europe. And thinking about Western Christendom in particular, that sort of area of Europe we're focusing on, these supernatural sort of disease beliefs generally fit into one of two categories. And these were the divine disease or the demonic diseases. So the divine disease briefly is that the idea that disease was some kind of a punishment from the god or gods for improper actions. And the demonic disease here, the belief is that the disease was caused by some kind of malevolent or evil spirit or in Christian context, um, even the devil. So there's a long history also, as he notes, of the divine theory of diseases. So we could look at works like Homer's Iliad, where we see a priest of Apollo who is trying to console Achilles on the battlefield in Troy and essentially gets brushed aside and is angered and so invokes Apollo and asks him to come down and punish Achilles and his men on the battlefield. We see sort of one of the classical examples in Judeo-Christian thought where Yahweh punishes Adam and Eve with disease and illness uh, for eating the forbidden fruit from the Garden of Eden. Um, I don't have it on here, but we also saw in one of the other readings the idea from the Zoroastrian perspective that uh, Angra Mayu, kind of one of the sort of dark forces that's always um, in battle or kind of in contest um, within Zoroastrian thought, um, either Angramayu or the jinn or sort of genies or sp evil kind of spirits may have been the cause of some disease or illnesses. Uh, in a little more modern times, the 1800s, we have examples like John Humphrey Noyes and the perfectionist movement who believed the wages of uh, evil was sin and in order to create a perfectly healthy and sin-free society, they would try to create these utopian communities which led to the emergence in upstate New York of the Oneida community, uh, which succeeded for a brief period and then collapsed, although they still make pottery. And then a more recent example in the later 1900s with uh, evangelical Southern Baptist preacher James Buchanan and many others of his ilk who have claimed that things like AIDS were God's punishment for what he viewed as the sin of homosexuality. So all of these share this sort of common belief that 
disease in one form or another has a supernatural or divine sort of origin. And then this other version, the demonic theory of disease, as Snowden notes, is this idea really postulates or proposes that the world is populated by powerful, arbitrary, and evil spirits that cause disease through the exercise of their malign influence. Now, these spirits could be evil people like witches or poisoners. They could be disembodied spirits of the dead who have essentially come back to haunt people. It could be supernatural beings or in a very like Christian context, they could be the devil himself. So we see examples of these belief in kind of an evil or malignant powers cursing or harming people uh, and very clearly in the Spanish Inquisition from the 14 to the 1800s uh, and perhaps most famously in examples like the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts in the 1690s. And we still see these beliefs uh, existing today despite the advances in medicine. So you still find in Christian circles the idea that um, someone may be possessed by the devil or a demon and they need to be um, given some kind of a religious exorcism to purge those evil spirits. Now we know that there were um, a wide variety of religious responses to the plague in this period. And despite their best efforts, church leaders ultimately um, were powerless to do anything in the face of the Black Death because there was simply nothing the church was able to do to intervene in these natural processes. And this led to many people losing their faith in the power of the church um, in the face of this kind of onslaught of death everywhere. But on the other hand, some people responded with a much more kind of extreme religious fanaticism, uh, the flagellants movement being perhaps the best example of this, where you have um, large groups of people holding these mass public parades of self-immolation across towns in Europe. Um, and were quite popular for a while until they started to raise basically too much um, political noise and began to challenge um, the sort of structure and authority of the church, leading uh, Pope Clement VI to issue a papal bull outlawing the flagellants in 1349. But yet this image of the flagellants continues to really haunt our popular culture in many ways. And we see them in films by Igmar Bergman, The Seven Seal, Monty Python films, uh, and The Holy Grail as well. We saw that clip from earlier. The flagellants make an appearance, although in that case they're uh, hooded monks um, rather than the kind of iconic um, stripped down to the waist uh, figures. And unfortunately, we also see kind of more dark reactions. So there were uh, Christian communities all over Europe who launched violent attacks against Jews from about 1348 to 1351, um, often accusing Jews of, falsely accusing Jews of polluting water and spreading the plague. Now, interestingly, one of the articles we read looked at some of the ways that both Christian and Muslim communities responded to the plague. And we see both similarities, but also some important differences. So uh, common Christian responses to the plague, some of which we just mentioned, included these kind of penitential processions. Um, certainly people going to church, fasting, praying, and using various kind of charms and amulets. Um, the flagellant movement that we just discussed. Um, belief that somehow if you could avoid this um, miasma, the bad air, either through uh, herbal cures or using you know, smokes or fumigations of some kind, as well as, as just mentioned there, the persecution of Jewish communities um, and other marginalized groups, but Jews in particular. Now, by contrast, Muslim responses to the plague um, have some similarities, but some important differences as well. Here, you don't really get these penitential processions 
with a mass flagellations, but instead you get prayers of supplication, and funerals, and various events trying to basically ask Allah to intervene on their behalf, but not um, to ask for forgiveness for a sin because that wasn't their belief in the cause um, of these plagues. You also see an increased belief in supernatural visions, signs and wonders at this time. Similar to Christian responses, particularly in a folk context, you see a lot of uh, falling back on the use of amulets and various charms um, in the hopes that they'll provide some kind of a cure. But perhaps most importantly and most interestingly, unlike the Christian response in Europe, there was very little persecution of marginalized communities um, within the Muslim world and much more respect, particularly for Jewish um, doctors and physicians at this period. So for example, as Joshua Mark um, noted in his article, Religious Responses to the Black Death, the responses between Christians and Muslims varied widely. And unfortunately, as he and others have noted, we don't know a lot about Jewish responses to the plague because much of records that may have existed were destroyed in these anti-Jewish pogroms that took place in the late 1300s. But interestingly, as Islamic scholar Michael Doles noted, because there's really no doctrine of original sin in Islam, Muslim efforts, particularly around prayer and response, were much more about sort of asking as supplicants um, for relief rather than asking forgiveness for sins in the way that the flagellant movements and others did. So as Doles notes, an important part of Muslim urban activity in response to the Black Death was the communal prayers for the lifting of the disease. During the greatest severity of the pandemic, orders were given in Cairo to assemble in the mosques and to recite the recommended prayers in common. Fasting and processions took place in the cities during the Black Death and later plague epidemics. Now, we can obviously question whether um, large communal prayers would have been the best way to stop the spread of some of these diseases. Um, it's hard to know how that may have contributed to the overall spread, um, but you can see a, a sort of a difference in the underlying orientation, which is important. So as I mentioned, another one of the important differences was the reactions to Jews um, between Christian and Muslim communities in this period. So by 1351, at kind of the end of the height of this anti-Jewish sentiment um, linked to the plague, there had been over 350 different incidents of anti-Jewish pogroms, which are kind of violent riots or raids on Jewish communities, with at least 60 major communities and 150 minor Jewish communities that had been um, wiped out or destroyed during this period. In fact, things had gotten so bad that Pope Clementine VI had issued two different papal bulls, one in the summer and one in the fall of 1348, basically asking Christians to stop attacking Jews in Europe. Um, and he said in one of his bulls, it cannot be true that the Jews by such a heinous crime are the cause or occasion of the plague because through many parts of the world, the same plague by the hidden judgment of God has afflicted and afflicts the Jews themselves. And as he also noted, people who claim that it was the Jews that are doing this are themselves deceived by Satan. So you can see here a depiction of what was known as the Valentine's Day Massacre in Strasbourg, February 14, 1349, where several hundred Jews were burned alive um, during a riot, and all of those uh, who weren't burned alive were driven out of town. And as you can kind of see in some of the foreground there, part of these um, raids and anti-Jewish sentiments were sort of economically and politically driven because there had been essentially legitimation by the church to say um, any Jew's property can be confiscated 
and then claimed. So there was this incentive to either kill or drive Jews out and then seize any of their property and goods for themselves. And you can see that very clearly depicted there in the foreground of this painting. Now, we looked a little bit at this idea of the flagellants, and this was one of the more extreme religious responses that was really grounded in this idea of the plague being a punishment or sin. And so we get, uh, as you can see in the depiction of this illustration here above, which is from an eyewitness report by Sir Robert of Avesbury in England, 1349. And as he wrote in his records here, he says, in the same year of 1349 about Michaelmas, which is roughly September 29th, over 600 men came to London from Flanders. They made two daily public appearances wearing clothes from the thighs to the ankle, but otherwise stripped bare. Each wore a cape marked with a red cross in front and behind. Each had in his right hand a scourge with three tails. Each tail had a knot, and through the middle of it there was something, sometimes sharp nails fixed. They marched naked in a file, one behind the other, and whipped themselves with these scourges on their naked and bleeding bodies. And you can see here another depiction of this kind of iconic image of these um, figures, mostly men stripped down with just uh, sort of a waist cloth on and these elaborate, often cone-shaped um, hats on. And you, we get an interesting depiction of what these may have looked like from uh, kind of an extended scene in Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. So I'll play this in two parts. One is the procession and the other um, is a priest kind of giving a spiel that uh, we might imagine would have taken place had we been living in one of these um, villages in the middle of the Black Plague in Europe. <laughs> So this is very much the celebratory response to the plague that some of our authors talk about. And these are the flagellants coming into the town. Again, you can see the, the idea of the fumes from the censers to help drive the miasma away.
then this is the clip immediately after. Of course, they wouldn't have said Black Death at that period. We'll forget Bergman. You can imagine such scenes coming through your town would have created quite the scene, particularly if these were large gatherings as happened in some of the bigger cities. So some of the important things to keep in mind when we think about the historical legacy of the Black Death, um, one was that the authority of the church was seriously weakened, both, as I mentioned earlier, by its inability to respond to the plague, but also by some of the important changes that happened to monastic life that came with easing the requirements to become a priest. Because remember, a large number of priests and other religious um, officials died either because they were involved in trying to treat people or just because like much of the population um, they died from exposure. So the church um, made radical changes to its requirements for being able to become a priest and to move up within the priestly um, sort of hierarchy. So you had a lot of people that were essentially going to church who had no kind of real formal education or training but were needed to fill some roles for the church. This also led to a whole process, the beginning of selling of indulgences and later practices that Martin Luther would uh, very strongly criticize. So many people point to kind of an important transitional moment here with the Catholic Church where 
we start to see criticisms of its ability to maintain social cohesion that would then really manifest with the Protestant Reformation later on in the following century. Another really important shift here is that rural laborers were able to demand more money for their labor because there was such a shortage of labor all over the countrysides. And this weakened the power of landed elites and also gave more um, power to this growing merchant class. And we also saw as part of this, not only did the merchant class um, grow more powerful, but it also created uh, more opportunities for social mobility as the weakening of these three estates, the nobles, the clergy, and the peasants that had organized so much of sort of medieval or feudal society for hundreds of years. All of this is beginning to break down now under the face of these pressures um, from the plague. And those changes would fundamentally redefine the future of life in medieval Europe as people began to bounce back and recover in the 1400s and would also lead to a whole new surge of innovation and industry that would then give us the sort of the lead into what we think of now as the Renaissance and the beginning of sort of the Enlightenment and this period that Charles Taylor and others that we've been reading talked about, the transition from a pre-modern to a modern sort of period of European life. So that's just a brief snapshot of some of the dynamics of the Black Death and the bubonic plague and its impacts, not only on Europe at this time, but in many ways, the lasting legacies of that event that continues to shape um, our thinking and in some ways the structure of our society today. So an interesting thought experiment, if you were imagine that you were transported back to this period in the 1300s in medieval Europe during the outbreak, how do you imagine that you might have responded had you found yourself in Florence or in Venice or in London or in any of the hundreds of cities or villages across Europe at this time? Would you have tried to flee your home in the face of oncoming plague? Would you have tried to stay and help others? Um, would you have taken the route of dancing and celebrating and just sort of saying, I'm going to die anyway, so I'm going to die um, happy and joyful? How do you imagine you may have responded or reacted to um, these kind of events? Thanks for joining me for another episode of The End of the World. That wraps up part one of our two-part special on disease and pandemics. Be sure to check out part two if you're interested in these topics where we turn to the 1918 influenza outbreak and look at how that event shaped the early years of the 20th century, as well as the lessons from that pandemic that continue to be relevant today as we face our own global coronavirus pandemic in 2020. As always, you can find more information about the topics and clips discussed here in the show notes below. Thanks for tuning in.